Well, today, as uh, we've already noted, with Mother's Day being celebrated within our culture, it's a day in which we think about family. We can't help it. Uh, obviously, with Mother's Day and later in June with Father's Day, I know in the fall there's Grandparents' Day and there's all kinds of days, right, in culture. And this is one of those days we start thinking or we continue to remember our family. And as we continue in our series here about the generous life, uh, we do well to kind of look at what does it mean to live a generous life uh, within our families and, and how that is to, be, to take shape. Now, I have to admit, uh, upon close reflection, who preaches Ephesians 5 on Mother's Day? Uh, it's one of those texts that is, a, is a, a bit of a challenge for us as modern hearers uh, as we come to it. Uh, we have to ask some real questions about what does this mean for us culturally, but even more so, what does it mean for us when it comes to our faith and how we live that out within our lives, particularly those who are married this morning um, or those who are parents. There's some uh, language in there. There's some terms and phrases uh, that certainly call us to a, a place of reflection and introspection as we consider how we might live. But I think there's a word here for all of us. Uh, this morning, regardless of what your marital status is, regardless of whether or not you are a parent or not. Of course, families were in the news this past week. Uh, You read the same news that I saw, uh, particularly a prominent family in our community. We learned this past week that after 27 years of marriage, that Bill and Melinda Gates are dissolving their marriage. And that dissolution of the marriage, uh, amongst all the good that has come from the marriage, think about uh, the children they've raised, uh, three kids together, but also all the work that they've done, uh, charitable work uh, within the community and around the world through their foundation. But on Twitter, they posted out this note uh, that said, we no longer believe we can grow together as a couple in this next phase of our lives. Now, I don't know Bill. I don't know Melinda, and I'm pretty sure they have no idea who I am. But I must admit that I was struck by this idea this week. I spent some time just really thinking about this idea of being a couple that doesn't believe that you can continue to grow together uh, in that next phase, that next chapter of life. It got me thinking about my own relationships, and maybe that's because I had this text swirling around in my, my heart and mind as well in preparation for today. But it really got me thinking about my own relationships, my marriage, uh, but also the way that I relate to people uh, across my entire life. And I thought about my own particular contributions. The dissolution of a marriage, though, specifically, whether that couple is prominent and a prominent member of the community or if they're uh, somebody somebody of much more simpler means or lesser known, uh, it's heartbreaking. That's a heartbreaking thing. And it's a stark reminder of the frailty of human relationships when we hear news of this. Of course, some might uh, sweep this away and just say, that's just a sign of the times. In America right now, about 40 to 50% of marriages actually end in divorce, and, and perhaps it is. Perhaps it is kind of a sign of the times. But marital problems have been with us from the beginning. They've been something that's been part of the human family and something that's been part of human culture uh, going all the way back. And if you add to that, Uh, the sense that not only are marital issues and troubles and problems uh, old, think about family trouble on top of that. We don't have to look any further than the scriptures themselves. Chapter 4 of Genesis tells us about a brother who kills another brother. And so we know that those struggles and those challenges have been with us uh, for as long as human history has existed. So we're not surprised at this point to hear that scripture, or at least we shouldn't be surprised to hear that scripture uh, speaks to the ordering of family life 
And that's what we see here this morning in our text. Paul turns his attention here to what would have been the typical Roman household. He's going to turn his attention uh, to four different groups here. Uh, He'll turn his attention to what we might call in our day and age the patriarch, or the male figure who is the husband and father. Uh, He'll turn his attention to what we might call the matriarch, or the the mother or wife. Um, He'll talk about kids uh, in a short section there at the beginning of chapter 6. And then uh, he'll move on just outside of our text to talk about the responsibilities or obligations of Christian slaves who live in the household. So he, he deals with this, this Roman household and he uses that as his outline. But when he does, uh, we're going to note something uh, that's not just Roman householdish. We're going to note something that's Ephesianish. And we talked about this last week. Paul here is going to enjoin the grand theological narrative. What God has accomplished in Jesus Christ, he's going to enjoin that with the practical expressions for what it means to be a Jesus follower. What is the way that we are to live? So before we get into that, let's talk a little about history here. Uh, Things that you might already know. The first thing is this. The Jewish community and religion uh, of the first century was patriarchal. I think we have to admit that before we come to a text like this. We need to recognize that that was the case, that male leadership in both home and synagogue, uh, and particularly the functions within the larger cultic practices, things like temple worship, uh, who held the roles in in temple worship, these were things that were held by men. Uh, And so it's a patriarchal culture, patriarchal religion. Uh, Roles are defined and limited. They had particular scopes and functions with them. In fact, there's a morning prayer that dates back uh, to the time of the first century or close to it, uh, in which men would express gratitude to God uh, for not making them a woman, a slave, or a Gentile. They'd have those three categories. And the reason they would pray that is because there was a recognition, I think here, of the limitations that each of those groups had within the religious functions of the day. And so as a, as a man, because they're within a patriarchal system, they were given more responsibility uh, and they ended up having more opportunities to serve uh, religiously, but also within the community. And so they're expressing gratitude uh, for that in that prayer. And so we're not surprised when we hear Deuteronomy chapter 24, a text that's much earlier than the first century, obviously, but one that speaks uh, to this issue of marriages and particularly to divorce. It says, suppose a man enters into marriage with a woman, but she does not please him because he finds something objectionable about her. And so he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and, and sends her out of his house. Certainly we can hear the patriarchy expressed in a text like that one. The man holds the ability to send away the woman. But a passage like this also reminds us of something else. It reminds us of something that we already know and something we've already heard this morning. Even in the ancient world, marital rifts existed. And so laws like this provide guidance for how to dissolve those marriages. In life... We know that great responsibility, those places where we are given uh, obligations and commitments that we are to uphold, can easily turn into irresponsible behavior. And that was the case in Paul's day. In Paul's day, it became much too easy uh, for men uh, to come up with what would be flimsy reasons for what became objectionable actions by their wives. And the process of divorce was far too easy for them to attain in the Jewish community. 
so flimsy that Jesus will actually address this issue in his teaching. If you remember Matthew chapter 5, uh, he addresses the issue of divorce. But this isn't just limited to the Jewish audience. It wasn't just the Jewish uh, community in Paul's day that also had challenges here. The Greco and, and Roman strands of culture also made divorce and the dissolution of marriages easy uh, for men to get. And there's actually, I was reading this past week about a particular uh, figure within Roman culture that was bragging about uh, how easy it was to divorce and calling out uh, different uh, spouses, uh, saying, hey, you should divorce your spouse uh, so I can marry them. Uh, as part of the historical record, we can see stories like this. And people that are married, you know, 10 times or more uh, within some of these cultures. Of course, this text here is not going to just stop with marriage. It's going to move on to children. If we think about children throughout history, they represented a vulnerable population, a population uh, that was questionable on rights, though they certainly hold promise. Uh, but there's the idea of a child in the ancient world was one who was soft and needed to be molded into adulthood. And so uh, this, that could take on a lot of different directions uh, with parents, particularly with fathers who were given the task of deciding whether or not a child was fit to remain in the family. So Paul's going to take on both of these characteristics, and we know this in history, we see that all these places are vulnerable places uh, for women and children, uh, and certainly, as Paul writes here, to a cosmopolitan group, a group of Jewish and Greek and Roman folks, and he writes these familial expectations uh, to them, uh, we should note here that it's written, again, within that tenor of a patriarchal culture that he writes here. So we're not surprised, again, another not surprised section here this morning when Paul writes these words considering that culture. Wives, be subject to your husbands. I imagine at this point that that kind of talk roils the feathers of not too many people in our community right now. When you hear that type of thing, it takes you to a place where you say as a modern, I, I don't know what to do with that. Because we, in our culture, over the last hundred years or more, have really contended with gender roles. Um, in our recent years, we're, we're addressing questions around gender, but in the last hundred plus years, we've been looking at uh, what are the roles of men and women, girls and boys. And so as we hear a text like this, it sounds to us at first like it might be a little dated, we might say, well, what, what is Paul getting at at this point? Is he speaking to me at this point? Or is this something where I just kind of turn the page and move to something else? Remember that when Supreme Court Justice Amy Coney Barrett was nominated around that time, when it was discovered that she had one time been part of a religious community that espoused this type of position, a traditional hierarchy within the marital relationship and the roles of male and female, that questions came into view as to whether or not she would be able to fulfill her charge to deliberate and offer uh, justice in her role as a Supreme Court justice. It's suspect for us as a culture when we hear talk like that. And of course, there's been those over the years who use this text, use traditional views here to somehow justify or condone their own ugly behavior and their own abuses of others. And of course, I know of at least one well-meaning interpreter uh, who ended up providing really bad counsel uh, trying to uphold a traditional position here. 
Uh, you can go to YouTube and you can find John Piper's words on this particular issue where he made a major blunder in some of the things he said uh, regarding this. And so some modern interpreters here have tried to smooth things out. They've gone to verse 21 and they said, you know, we see a more egalitarian type reading here where there's the idea of mutual submission. Men submitting to women, women submitting to men uh, within the marital relationship. And so they try to appeal to modern sensibilities and when they do, they make some really, really good points uh, here at this point, but not without interpretive problems. We're still left with this line, wives, be subject to your husbands. And so as we hear Paul's admonition here to wives to faithfully embrace a posture which Paul seems to be saying to subordinate themselves and to support their husbands, it's peculiar for many of us here in the Western world, but not so much in Paul's day. But here's what would have been peculiar. Here's where Paul goes outside the culture. He defies the cultural expectation here by admonishing wives not just to do this willingly, not just to accept it because it's a role within culture, but he goes even further to say, as you are to the Lord. He says, wives, be subject to your husbands as you are to the Lord. Culture isn't naming how they're to live. That's not what Paul is arguing for here. He's saying instead that the picture that you might have of someone who is enslaved or someone who is being locked down by their husband, relegated to a subservient lot, is the wrong picture. That's not what he's describing here, but rather he's saying that it's one who positions themselves in such a way that utilizes their unique gifts, while at the same time rightly identifying the limits of their husband. Their husband's not God, and also sets the parameters for what cannot be relinquished, their own obedience to Christ. And so Paul, by doing this, is providing us with a new lens this morning in which to look at our relationships within our family life. I imagine at this moment that there's still some who remain unconvinced. You say, wait a second here. I, I still don't know if I can go with Paul in this. For others, you might be unmoved. You say, nope, I've been going with Paul on this for a long time. So let me offer this third way here for us as we consider all the relationships within our life as a family here. It's one that comes out of verse 21, which says a reverence to Christ in verse 22, ask the Lord. Perhaps Paul here is providing readers with this new lens, one in which we evaluate our family relationships, one in which we look at the way that we're ordered within our family, and we don't align ourselves necessarily uh, with what the culture says, but rather we say this, Jesus followers are to model their familial conduct and relationships on Christ, regardless of what the culture expects. And so let me give you a couple examples here of how when we do so, it becomes absolutely counterculture. Number one, as people are to subject uh, themselves and to submit to one another. We see that in verses 21 and 22. People in 21, and then wives, Paul lists in 22. When your model is Jesus Christ who Paul describes in Philippians chapter 2 as being, though he was in the form of God, did not regard equality with God 
as something to be exploited, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, being born in human likeness, and being found in human form. He humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When that's your model, when that's the picture of what it looks like to humble oneself or to subject or submit yourself to another, there's no attempts in that to lay siege to or dominate or control others. It's a giving of oneself for the good of the other. And that changes not only the family dynamic, but it has reverberations throughout all of culture when we live that way. That is definitely countercultural. The second thing we see here is this. Husbands, love your wives. Paul says that in verse 25. What's available to husbands in the first century? Certainly an easy divorce that they wanted. Certainly they could seek, we see this in Greek and in Roman sources, companionship outside the marriage, and that would be something that's uh, permissible at the time. Certainly uh, overbearing control within the household. We have stories of families where the patriarch literally can decide whether or not a member of the family remains in the family and sends them away on their own whim. But with Jesus' love for the church in view, and that's what Paul pictures here when he speaks these words, that changes everything. The cross, the cross itself, that ultimate symbol of self-sacrificial love is considerable. But also take into account the incarnation in total. The fact that God would become human, would take on flesh, would then be the Holy One surrounded by a sinning bunch. And then to imagine Christ in that final week, surrounded by not only sinners, but those who are plotting his own death, even though he is innocent. To take on all those pieces, to willingly give, to self-sacrifice to the fullest. In that economy, choices aren't measured by what's permissible. And that's the standard that culture would hold up to us. The counterculture here is that this posture of self-sacrifice is not only one that changes the way we might live individually, but it complements uh, Paul's admonition to wives. When husbands live that way, when they step into that particular role of giving of themselves just as Christ has given of Christ's self to the church, we in fact see what we imagine would be impossible. We see a life that is generous. We see a life that is to the full. The third thing is this, is that in verse 33, you'll see that marriages are then identified as places of love and respect. Audrey Hepburn uh, once famously remarked, if I get married, I want to be very married. <laughs> so if I get married, I want to be very married. I believe she was married twice, so I'm not sure how that works out. But um, love and respect in the home is what it means to be very married. That's what it means to be very married. And as for Paul, the picture is filled out by Christ's own love for the church and the church's respect for Christ. Without this, the church cannot be the church. Without Christ's love, we're not a church. Without our, in turn, expressions of gratitude and respect to Christ for all that Christ has accomplished, 
we don't live into the faithfulness that those people are called to live, that we're called to live, and the church crumbles. When it happens in marriage, marriages crumble. When love and respect leave the room, when they exit the family, it's not too soon after that we learn that people can't grow together, that those places have changed in their heart. And Paul doesn't just leave these words here, of course, for mothers and fathers or husbands and wives. Paul is actually going to extend words down to how to live a faithful life to children. And when he does so, he says that children are to obey their parents. Of course, not just for spouses, like I said, but children. I know in our own culture that it's, it's rather comedic to picture a child as being this wise and savvy character and their parents to be idiots. We see a lot of television shows and uh, places where that, that is kind of the exalted humor, which the child who knows and is savvy, is wise to the world, uh, explains to their parents who don't seem to know anything uh, the way that things are to go. But the parents have become out of touch. This certainly can feed the sense in a young person uh, of their need for autonomy. It can certainly uh, build with on. It builds within a culture that exalts and, and honors the idea of becoming your own person or becoming an individual, and so it speaks to that particular cultural expectation. But Paul here is going to say to young Jesus followers, uh, and he's going to admonish them here to go a different path. And that different path, as we heard already in the children's sermon, is already connected uh, to ones who submit themselves to others. And so how does that look for a young person? Children, obey your parents. And they have a responsibility there to live a path that reaches back to a more ancient teaching, back to those Ten Commandments of honoring their father and their mother. Why? Because you have to. Why? Because this is what you're supposed to do? No. More than that. Because God has a blessing in store for you when you do. That God has life for you, and that's the heart and desire of God, that we might experience greater life. The last one is this. Fathers do not provoke their children in anger. See that in chapter 6, verse 4. In the sense here again, even though you might have the one who's considered even the Roman world as the top of the heap, is still reaching down to the child, the one to be molded. It's not just for kids here, but adults are also to live as ones who give of themselves, who submit in some ways to their younger counterparts, to offer care and grace and that's countercultural. It's countercultural in Paul's day, a day when that would not be expected. Children are without rights. They're to be molded into fully functioning human beings. Paul expresses a different type of sentiment here, inviting parents to place themselves under the service of the Lord, caring for all God's people regardless of their age, valuing children and the responsibility they have to these youngest members of the family. So what do we do with all this? We hear all this historic stuff. We hear all these pieces that are uh, connected to what seemed to be another time. That yes, there's pieces in there countercultural for us to live. And oddly enough, I was reminded of a story this week, a story of a lumberjack. And I think it helps us understand what God has for us in this place here. Lumberjack went into the uh, hardware store carrying a broken axe. You may have heard this story before. He walks in with a broken axe, 
And he says, I need to replace my axe. I've been out working, cutting trees down. And the person who was working there, the salesperson, says to him, says, well, how much wood do you get with one of those axes? He says, ah, maybe one or two cords a day if I'm, you know, just kind of doing my average work. And the salesperson says to him, you know, let me show you something here. Takes him down a, one of the aisles there, and on the wall are a number of chainsaws. He says, let me show you a chainsaw. I bet if you used one of these, you would get like four or five cords of wood a day. Lumberjack liked the sound of that, so he took one and he, he left. Came back about a week later with a broken chainsaw. Holds it up to the salesperson and says, you know what, I'm... I need to replace my chainsaw, it's broken. And, and by the way, you said I could get, you know, upwards of like four cords of wood. I only, I only got like two, maybe three on my best day with this. And so the salesperson pulls a chainsaw off the wall and starts it up. The sound of a loud chainsaw going across the aisles of that store. The lumberjack looked at him and said, what's that sound? Friends, when we don't when we don't live into these places that God calls us to be, when we don't look to live and experience the generous life that God has for us where we connect ourselves, where we, where we submit ourselves to one another out of reverence for God, where we don't see our lives as being uh, living in a faithful expression of Christ's own life in the church, we're like someone trying to cut down a forest without turning on the chainsaw. And that's where we find ourselves oftentimes in life, in our marriages, in our parenting, in our relationships with our own parents, with our extended family, even outside the family with community members. So we're talking about families here today. We're remembering the unique, unique contributions of mothers. And I recognize that for some, it, this can be a p place of pain. It can be a, a place uh, for growth as well. But as you consider how you might live into the generous life that God has for you, as I consider how God has called me as well, a life that runs counter to cultural expectations in the first century, but also here in the 21st century, let me close with this one piece that we began our scripture reading with this morning. As you live, be subject to one another out of reverence for Christ. When we do, we live the generous life in our families. Amen. Let us pray together. Lord, we thank you on this day for your great love for us. A love that challenges us in some ways, but also comforts us in others. A life that calls us to live a new way. A life that breathes into us new experiences, new hopes, new imagination. And so, Lord, this day, as we uh, consider and continue to remember what has been accomplished for us in Jesus Christ, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to live this way. Help us to live as ones who uh, deeply care and submit to each other. Lord, help those marriages across this community that are struggling uh, today. We pray, Lord, that you would infuse them with your blessing, with your presence. And Lord, for all the parents across this community today, we pray, Lord, that you would strengthen them as well, that each one of us might live faithful lives for the one who indeed has been faithful all along, which is you. And we pray this in Christ.